Genesis chapter 41, we have uh, seen Joseph go through a lot of different trials. We've seen him uh, endure the, the mocking, the bitterness, the hatred of his brothers. We have seen them sell him off into slavery to a, a caravan as it passed through town after they'd thrown him in a ditch. And that was actually plan B. Plan A was just to let him die there, frankly, in the pit. Uh, and we have seen him uh, become, despite that beginning, very successful. And I know it's weird for us to talk about him being successful as a slave in Egypt, but, but he was because of God's blessing. And, and Joseph... And the scriptures are clear. It was because the hand of God was on him that he had the success that he had. But he was even even in the circumstance of slavery in Egypt as a foreigner. He was able to set an example of integrity and character and faith that spoke to the people around him. He then was falsely accused. And we looked at that a few weeks ago. He was falsely accused of rape and thrown in prison. Didn't get a fair trial. Nothing like that. No innocent until proven guilty. Did not happen. Straight to prison he went. And he was there for years. We saw that even in prison, God blessed him. He trusted in God and he thrived there. He worked and he served to the best that he could despite his circumstances. And because of that, in all of these places, both in the high points and literally in the pits, God blessed him. And it just kept getting turned back around into something that no matter what the devil threw at him, God could turn it back into something good. And we're going to pick up here in Genesis 41. He's still in prison, but this is the story of him finally. Uh, you can't, I don't know that you can really call it regaining freedom, but, but sort of uh, getting out of prison. Now, he would certainly probably feel that way but compared to where he was. Everything is a matter of perspective, right? Let's start reading in verse 1. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing in the Nile. When out of the river, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. These were called raised cows. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. These are the cows I saw on the highway in Cambodia. You know, where you, they, they were... They were it, I'm from West Texas. Bramer. They were Bramer cattle. That's not how it's spelled at all, I understand. And Carl Ray's over there going, no, no, no. But that's just the way it is. And you can see their ribs because they live on the grass that is part of the rice plant. And there's not enough nutrition in those plants. And they just scrawny looking things. And nobody wants to eat a hamburger made out of those. So they have to import all their beef from Australia where they find seven sleek fat cows coming up out of the Nile. In Australia, wouldn't that be odd? That wasn't part of Pharaoh's dream. But he's dreaming. He sees fat, sleek cows, seven of them, and then skinny cows. And he's still trying to figure all this out. And what happens? Verse 4. The cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Maybe they were teenager cows. You ever notice how skinny teenagers could flat eat up fat seven fat cows and stay skinny? Then he woke up. Then he woke up. He fell asleep again and he had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. That, that would be stuff trying to grow in your backyard right now. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. And if they woke up, it had been a dream. Now I can kind of sympathize, OK, because last night. 
You know, it's that time of the year where you can actually kind of open a window. I know some of you are going, open a window last time. Yes, you do. You open up a window and you let the breeze come in and it was so nice and cool. And then when I woke up at five or, or no, five o'clock this morning, I was awake for a couple of minutes. And then you know what I realized? That window was all that was between me and the train. That was it. Oh, my word. I'm sitting there trying to interpret my dream about seven. In fact, no, that was Pharaoh. When the train all of a sudden comes by, then the snooze went off and I turned it off and tried to go back to sleep. You have no idea how many trains go through Zephyr between five and seven o'clock in the morning. But most of them I've never heard until I left the window open. It was crazy. Well, Pharaoh wakes up and he doesn't have to worry about trains. He has to worry about camels and they probably sound about the same depending on what they ate. Well, he fell asleep again. No, no, no. I'm I'm going up the wrong verse. In the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. And I saw David earlier. There you are. I talked about you last week and you don't know it. But when we talked about interpreting dreams, your brother, I learned an important lesson from him. Never ask a Cheryl to interpret your dreams. You know what? Do you know what he does when he interprets dreams? I'll tell you later because it's not fit for public, but you don't, you just don't, don't go to Paul Sherrill to interpret dreams, but he's sitting there and he goes and calls all of his wise men and his magicians. He says, I don't understand what this is about. And it's kind of interesting, you know, of course we know from scripture, but he must have been convicted that this was something more than just a weird dream. Okay. There are dreams you have that kind of stay with you. You know, there's gotta be something, maybe it's just my brain working through something, or maybe it's a God thing, but it's not the same kind of impression you get when it's just been because you had two also burritos on your way home. Right. Those are different dreams. Those are the train dreams. And, you know what I'm talking about. That's an awesome burrito dream. That's how you tell. But he knows there is something about this dream that is important and he needs to understand. I don't know why he was so convicted, but I can kind of identify. You, you may have been there, too. You may have had those moments in your life where you thought, I don't know, this seems like something more important than just normal, everyday dreaming and REM sleep kind of stuff. So he calls all his magicians and all of his wise men, and they don't have a clue, okay? And that's, that's, that's kind of like now, isn't it? You call all the wise men and you call all the magicians or whatever you want to call them, and self-help gurus and people on TV, and what do you get? You get pretty much they don't really know what, what they're talking about, right? God talks about that in Scripture all over the place from the first book to the last, and it's just most of it hot air. And Pharaoh finds that most of his guys were worthless when it came to interpreting this dream. Verse 9. You remember we looked at last week, the baker and the cupbearer. And the cupbearer was helped by the interpretation of Joseph. Joseph told him, listen, you're going to get out of prison. You're going to get your own old job back. And everything's going to be set back right. It's going to be great. And he celebrates and thinks that's wonderful. But he gets so carried away and going back to his old life, he totally forgets that he had promised Joseph that he would mention him to Pharaoh and and to those in charge. And so Pharaoh ends up spending these two more full years in prison. Well, finally, verse nine, after two years, he goes, hey, you know what? Because he's in the room. He's there serving the king while they're talking about all this stuff. He says, you know what? There's a guy. I remember there was a guy. And when I had a dream, he interpreted my dream. This guy knows more than more than any of these guys. Maybe maybe we ought to do something about it. So he says, 
I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Verse 11. Each of us had a dream that same night and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him our dreams and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And the things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position and the other man was hanged. He says, this guy knows what he's talking about. It all turned out just as he said. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh, which tells us a little bit about his condition in prison. Right. He was looking pretty scraggly and nasty and they had to clean him up before he could go before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, Joseph does something here that's really important. And that if we're going to be servants of God. And if we're actually going to make a difference for the kingdom of God, if we're going to be the kind of disciples we claim to be, we have to take on the same kind of an attitude and the same kind of actions need to be our actions. Look what Pharaoh has just said. I have heard about you. I have heard that if you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Okay? Pharaoh has heard that it's Joseph where all the power lies, Joseph, where the ability lies, Joseph, that is able to do all these things. Joseph hears Pharaoh say this and his reaction is not, well, all shucks. Yeah, I can do that. It's not that. Look at what he does. Verse 15. He says, I had a dream. Nobody can interpret it, but I've heard about you. Verse 16. Joseph, I cannot do it. Reply. He replied to Pharaoh. I can't do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. That may seem like just a small, insignificant verse, but you are seeing in that verse one of the secrets to why God used Joseph despite his circumstances. And one of the secrets to why Joseph turned out to be such an influential person for, and this is the right way to put it, for the kingdom of God. Because Joseph... Uh, is a pivotal his his work here and what's about to happen is pivotal in human history and the history of Israel and the church. It's our history. And it happens because of this pivot point. Pharaoh, it's not me, but God can do it. It's very similar to something Jesus said with man. It is impossible, but with God. All things are possible. That's the heart of a servant. We just sing, give me the heart of a servant. That's where it starts. It's not about me. It's about God. It won't be by my strength or by my power or by my wisdom or my, my ability. It will be because God does. And that, that diligence to always seek the favor to go to God rather than to us is central in a servant's heart. And it stands out like it's, it's, it's oil and vinegar when you have this attitude up against the attitude of praise me, thank me, praise me, thank me. And there's a Seinfeld. I should have brought a clip because it's an awesome clip where a guy is teasing Seinfeld because of it's, it's this long story about a fur coat that falls from an apartment building, and lands on a tree and a guy puts it on. It's a weird story. But 
he's joking about how, you know, well, you know, he's a comedian and, and they had delicate uh, egos and their ego has to be stroked. And so this guy makes fun of him saying, oh, yes, you have to be so delicate. Love me, praise me, compliment me and all of this stuff. Those two attitudes are so incompatible with each other. I cannot do it, but God can. And pat my back, stroke my back, be my cheerleader. They're so different, aren't they? Only one of these becomes a true servant of God. One will always seek the credit of being a servant, but only one will actually be a servant of God. And we see this in Joseph right here at the very beginning of his conversation with Pharaoh, a time where many, many, many of us would say, man, here is my shot to get my name in the right door and he can do something for me. Because that's the human way of thinking, isn't it? It's just not the God's servant way of thinking. I can't do it. Verse 16, I can't do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he deserves. When Pharaoh said to Joseph, uh, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. When out of the Nile, there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I'd never seen such ugly cows. And I like how he puts his commentary. I had never seen such an ugly cow in all of Egypt. They were nasty. Uh, where's Margaret? Almost as nasty as molasses. Where are you? I said, there you are. We, Emmett was pouring molasses last night, and we thought of you, just so you know. <laughs> she doesn't like molasses. I uh, said, so these were scrawny, scrawny, nasty cows, and they looked up just as ugly as, as before, and then I woke up. And then he tells him also about the grain, and this is what Joseph says to Pharaoh in verse 25. The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The same uh, the seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years. And so are the seven worthless heads of grain. They are seven years of famine. It's just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Notice he does it again. Again, he doesn't just say Here's what I'm going to tell you the dream means. He says, again, God has shown you. It's God who's doing this. Uh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. And the abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. We can kind of identify that with t- at times, can't we? The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. He says he told you twice because it's a done deal. This is not questionable. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food shall be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that it will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. 
the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one who whom is in this one in whom is the spirit of God? So Joseph interprets the dream. Pharaoh says, I think this guy's got a great plan. Where are we going to find somebody? And I've highlighted here some a couple of things that that stick out. Verse 38. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of of God. In this brief interaction from the time of the dream to the time of the interpretation of the dream, Pharaoh has already been convicted enough by the interpretation, by what Joseph has to say, that he already understands if we're going to put somebody in charge of this plan, it needs to be somebody who is in touch with God. Okay, the first characteristic of a servant of God was a humble, God-honoring spirit. They're not in it for themselves. They understand it's not about them. The second thing that, that Pharaoh says you need to look for is what? We need to find somebody in whom God's spirit rests. You know where you've read that before? I'm trusting that you've read it before. You know where you've read that before? Acts chapter 6. In the choosing of the very first, we say, we say this, he's just, they're just calling for people to do some work. And we call them deacons. It never says that in the book of Acts. We always call it the first, the first deacons. Okay? So, in the choosing of those seven men who were to, to distribute the bread to the widows, because they were having some uneven distribution of bread every day to Grecian and Hebraic widows. And that it needed to be done with equity and it needed to be done with fairness and without regard to their background and all that good stuff. Right. Same kind of stuff people still struggle with in the United States today. And so they said, well, we need some men who can serve the bread and heal these wounds. When you look at the qualifications of these men, it had far more to do with the healing of the wounds and the disunity caused than it had to do with actually handing out bread. Anybody can hand out bread. But God had shown Peter and the spirit has shown them we need guys that will actually also help to heal these wounds spiritually. And so they had to pick to distribute the bread. Seven men who were full, Acts chapter six says, full of the spirit. So there seems to be a theme that spans both testaments, both covenants, doesn't it? This is pre-Moses, so really even longer than that, even at the time of the patriarchs, that the servant God uses is not just a servant, but somebody in a good relationship with God, with a spiritual maturity. And it doesn't mean that you've got to be some Christian rock star, but somebody that is saying, you know what, where God leads me, I'll go. What God wants me to do, I'll do. And all glory is his. Those are your two characteristics right here at the beginning. And you see here in both of these in Joseph. Okay? And Joseph's just a human. He's just like us. No pedestal there. So what that tells us is if we can see in him, we can see it in ourselves, can't we? We can make these choices. We can live this life and see this blessing. But it will start with those two things. Humble spirits, a humble servant spirit that gives all the glory to God and a real connection to the spirit of God, to where even a pagan like Pharaoh says, we need somebody that has the spirit. You may have a neighbor right now that's thinking, man, I could use somebody that has the spirit of God because I'm going through some things. 
I wonder if they'll think about you. I wonder if they think about me. I wonder if they think about us. That's, a, that's something we ought to dwell on and, and pray about and, and ask the Lord about. Verse 39, Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and as wise as you. I highlighted the important part because it's what Joseph said was the important part. Since God made this known to you. When we become servants that can be used in that way, humble enough to get our ego out of the way, faithful enough to let God's work be done through us, to where even the world looks at us and says, man, that's somebody I need to help me. We start to have an impact and an influence that can be nationwide. Isn't that what happens here with Joseph? He presents this plan. Pharaoh says, you know what? I don't know anybody else who's more in touch with God than you. And since this is God's idea, maybe I ought to use a God person to put into, into action. And so that's what happens. Long story short, we won't read all of that. And you can do that when you go home. Uh, but the long story short is they follow through on the plan. Joseph becomes the second most responsible and powerful person in all of Egypt. And he, he takes that responsibility very seriously. He acts as a humble servant of God and he gets it done. And when he does, not only does Egypt survive this famine, but Egypt is able to have enough of their crops saved up during those seven good years that they are actually able then to do trade with other nations who were also hit by the famine. And so that influence then hits out internationally is the way we would say it today. I don't know if they thought those words at the time, but there was an international blessing through Egypt, a pagan nation. Yeah, but one that in this particular act obeyed God and followed his plan. Listen to what he had to say. And because of that, they were able to bless other nations around them out of the abundance of their seven years. Now, what would happen if we did all those things? If we got our egos out of the way and just served every opportunity we got, even when it's at the depth of our imprisonment, so to speak, as it was for Joseph. What would happen if all we were concerned about was never our ego again, but just saying, if God gets the credit, then I'm happy with that. If the person walks away singing, not my praises, but to God be the glory, great things he has done. I will be thrilled with that. It's the Matthew 5:16 principle. Let your light so shine among men that they see your good works and praise your father who is in heaven. Our world will praise God when we get this. And we, we worry about our world and how they are turning their back on the Lord. Let me say that sentence again. But if we get this, our world will praise God. So do we not already know what needs to happen? Is it possible we're just hoping that they'll do the work instead of us? Are we relying on them to repent before we do? Why would that happen? Why would that happen? Instead, we need to have go out with a servant's heart. And this theme goes all through the New Testament. Just a couple of things to look at here. Both of them in Galatians. Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Ooh, we like that. You know, we're Americans. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and go over there to Galatians 5. And if you got yourself a pen and you're one of those people who's a heathen and writes in your Bible, you just go ahead. Hey, listen, you, mine's multicolored up here. So, OK, granted, some of that is, is what we call palm oil. Palm oil is real good for your Bible. 
Some of that's highlighter and pencil. Get over there. Underline that. Verse 13 and 14. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature or in the flesh, as the newer NIV says. Don't think that your life in Christ is all about, oh, good, I was forgiven for my past sins. Now I'm going to do some more. Mm, that seems to be how a lot of people live their Christianity. But, you know, that's not Christianity. That's just plain old good selfishness wrapped in religious garb. No, he says, don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. OK, so one good thing about Scripture, it doesn't just say don't. It then tells us, OK, then what do I do if it's not just going to be about me? What's it going to be about? Well, here we go. Verse 14. Well, you go back up to the second half of 13. Rather serve one another in love. Serve one another in love for the entire law is fulfilled in the keeping this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You think we could change the world? Could we do the same thing as Joseph? We might not have to have a plan that gets implemented in Washington, D.C. We may not have to become vice president for this to work. Could we, with this many servants in this room, go out and change our world with humility, love and service in the name of God and to the glory of God? Could we do that? thing is, I think we all know we can do that. And then the question becomes, will we do that? Well, here's the cool thing. Paul tells us right here, if you do that, you've done everything God wants you to do. Well, wait a minute. I thought I had to I thought I had to have closing prayer first. Am I is it official without closing prayer? If I go do this without closing prayer, is it official? You know, we have lists, lists of things that we might think have to happen first. He says, you fulfill the whole law doing this. Everything you are, everything God wants you to be when you are this kind of a servant. And when people wrestle their whole life, I just don't know if I'm doing what God wants me to do. I just don't know if blah, 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 blah. But you are. You are. If this is your life, is that not just an incredible comfort that we can have in Christ to know that? One other passage. Galatians 6, 9 and 10. I'm going to go back up. This has nine and ten, but I'm going to go back up to verse seven because I think I think the whole paragraph is important. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Now, it almost sounds like a threat at first, doesn't it? Don't you be deceived. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That's that's how you heard it in the 70s. Am I right? That's how you heard it. And to an extent, some of this is meant that way. Paul's dealing with some pretty heady stuff when he gets into this. This paragraph. But it's also a comfort. Because what are you sowing? See, it's not determined to be a threat if what you're sowing is what God wants. Whether it's a threat or whether it's a comfort depends on what you did last week. Well, what'd you do last week? Because you're going to reap from it. What'd you do? Was it good? Was it righteous? Was it holy? Did it serve the Lord? Did it bring God honor? What do you got to worry about? Nothing. The one who sows to please the sinful nature, his flesh. Is that what that that's probably what that would say? Um, he's going to reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Don't we see that play out in Joseph's life? Don't we see that even just in that one chapter? 
He was in prison because he refused to give in to the flesh. Did he reap for that? He did. In the short term, he reaped some hardship. Nobody ever said it was going to be easy. Paul would tell you that too. But what did he reap long term? He was restored. He was blessed. And through him, nations were fed because of his leadership. People survived that would have starved to death because of his leadership. He reaped what he sowed and it was good. Let us not become weary in doing good. It's a simple sentence. You see it. People use it as a tagline all the time. But it needs to be our lifestyle. Let us not grow weary in doing what is good. Sometimes I hear that. I hear people who are weary. I just don't want to do that anymore. I'm just tired. I'm just this. I'm just that. You know what's funny? Joseph started with, I can't either. But then what did he do? He said, I can't do it. But God can. And God chose to do it through the man who said he couldn't do it. So the next time you tell me you can't, what am I going to assume? God can. He might do it through you. You may put that on a T-shirt and I'll just hand it to you when you say it, right? (laughs) I went to see Jerry Seinfeld not too long ago at the concert in Abilene. And he said that the phrase, it is what it is, drives him nuts. It is what it is. He said, there's nothing any good that, that it doesn't mean anything. It has zero meaning. He says, why doesn't somebody, when, when they come up to you, instead of saying it, it, it is what it is, why don't they just blow in your face? Next time you want to say, well, it is what it is, just go. Or if somebody says to you, it is what it is, just go. And if they ask you why, say, well, it is what it is. You know, I don't know. That to me is what, well, you know, I'm just getting, I'm just kind of getting kind of old and I'm just getting kind of tired. So are the four year olds. We're all getting older every single day. Every day. You are closer to your death than you were yesterday. Be blessed. Have a good day. We're done. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. But it's true. We're all tireder than we used to be. I'm 46 years old. I find that to be very young because I hang out with a lot of you. And so still, still, though, man, I had to climb up on the kitchen counter last night and fix a light that's up on the ceiling. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking, I know I could have done this a whole lot easier when I was 36 and 26 and 16. And at six, I guess I probably could have climbed up the ceiling like a spider or something and done the thing. I don't know. We're all getting older. So Where does our strength come from? You actually may be at a point. Joseph was older here than he was before. You may be at a point in your life where physically you cannot do the same things. Second Corinthians chapter four and chapter five. Go home and read them as homework. Even though outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly, Paul says, we are being renewed day by day. And the world looks and says, if we're going to have somebody that's going to help us, it's going to have to be somebody in whom the Spirit lives. The Spirit of God that renews day by day, that strengthens despite what your muscles may feel. That can use you despite what your social security card says about you or by what your your AARP card says about you. 
I guess I'm just a few years away from that myself. I don't know. I still think we need a Christian one. It'd be, we'll call it CARP and put the fish on there. CARP, Christian Association of Retired Persons. And it works. Doesn't that work? I think it works. We're going to give you one sometime. You know what's going to be on that card? It's going to say CARP. It is what it is. It's going to have a little fan on it. You hit a button. Just blow it in your face. No, I'm too tired. Blow back in your face. Never grow weary in doing what is good. That's the spirit talking to you. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. If, 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 if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, and we all do, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Let's pray together.